So correct me if I'm wrong, but you have not seen Basic Instinct. No, no, I've never seen Basic Instinct. I think we were a little bit young when it came out. Oh yeah, like 10 years old, 92, so. Yeah, and it was full rated R, right? Like this is a movie that uh, someone flashes vag. <laughs> that happens. You ever see uh, Fatal Attraction? Fatal Attraction, that sounds more familiar. Disclosure? You ever see Disclosure? <laughs> Are we getting at uh, <laughs> at our favorite leading man? I was in- gonna, have you not seen any of the Michael Douglas uh, <laughs> early 90s where he was just in this run of just erotic thrillers? That's like all he was starring in? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I guess if you have the pull at that point in his career, he probably yeah. had a lot of pull. You might as well... Make sure that you're having a good time on set. I guess. I mean, I get Glenn Close, your mileage may vary, but like 90s Demi Moore, Sharon Stone, that's a, that's a nice little run. I mean, Glenn Close would uh, fit probably with the beer that we're drinking today along with Sharon Stone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. I'm Nolan. And uh, this is, <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. This is our 69th episode, and so you insisted. You're like, <laughs> we need to find a sex-filled movie. I just said, I, just said, I mean, episode. whenever you you hit that the sex number, you got to make sure that you got a movie <laughs> that kind of fits with it. So I suggested we had some kind of sexual thriller again. It's been a while. Yeah, um, it has been a little while. But yeah. <laughs> today, we are discussing Basic Instinct 2. Yes. The 14 years, I believe, later sequel to the original basic instinct Sharon stone coming back to teach the world that older women can be sexy <laughs> so the original right was kind of a pinnacle sexy thriller movie right it was pretty controversial at the time there was both violence and sexuality that people hadn't seen maybe almost that graphic in a like regular movie premiere is well, this sort of like I, again the, the like the head-on shot of her flashing vagina it, it made her a star the movie made her a superstar but subsequently i think it came out that she did not know that shot was going to be in the movie and felt kind of like i don't want to say violated but like i, I don't be violated i think the right that's word. a fair yeah. word yeah i think that's a fair word i think from all the things that we've heard since then right she was sort of preyed upon in that movie the director wasn't straight up with her and it sounded like it was not a good place to be working. No. And as much as you laughed a few seconds ago when I said coming back to show the world that older women can be sexy, like she is a huge proponent of women should be able to continue acting. There should be roles for older women. I think that was actually part of the motivation here for her to do this because like she's, I mean, she's got to be north of 40 in this. And, you know, we'll talk about this later, but there is a marked difference in her appearance. But, I mean, still turning up the heat in this one, as we just saw. Yeah, for sure. I think we talked about this a little bit, actually, in our Catwoman episode, right? Yes. We, she was uh, our sort of main villain and the only one in that movie who could act. So it was kind yeah. of funny. Underrated episode, by the way. If you haven't heard Catwoman, go back and check it out from our first season. It's an enjoyable, uh, not the movie. No. But yeah, the, the movie sucks ass. I was talking about it. Yeah. yeah, it's a good time. Um, And it, it's interesting, right? Because I think, unfortunately, what she was known for from the first one was really just her sexiness. And because as she got older, all those parts started to dry up in Hollywood. I think we're at a changed place or starting to get to a changed place. I think I don't think we're at a changed place, but I think attitudes about who can be in what roles are starting to change. Yeah, right there's now. been some progress. Now, the real question is, would she approve of the beer we've chosen for today's episode? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so? Well, I mean, we do have a, po- a comedy podcast, so it's uh, kind of important that we we keep it lighthearted around here. We 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 make sure that we're non-offensive for the most part, but we also want to have some fun. So we, we are drinking a beer. This is actually from Country Boy Brewing. It's my first beer from them. 
uh, you went uh, on a little research trip this summer to go find us some great American brews we could feature on yes, the Yes, did a little traveling south of the border. So I was in Pennsylvania for a while, Ohio, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, kind of all over the place. And we got sort of an assortment of beers I could find there. And this is the first of what will be a few American beers this season. Tell everyone what it's called. So to fit along with uh, Sharon Stone coming back 14 years after her famous first basic instinct... Right, proving that older women are still sexy. We've got cougar bait right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's cougar bait. Um, yeah. We know that sometimes sexier older women are described as cougars. And well, everyone knows that. What are we doing here? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. So uh, this place is in Kentucky. They actually have two spots. Um, the first one is in Lexington, Kentucky. And then they opened up a much bigger brewing facility. I think they actually have the largest craft brewing facility in the state. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. And that one's in Georgetown. That's where this one says it's coming from. Uh, they sort of, their spirit behind beers is making really high quality with not a lot of processing. So they want it to be as much as kind of like fresh ingredients in the beer. And I'm hoping that we'll sort of taste that when we we drink this cougar bait. I'm looking forward to it. It's a it's an American <laughs> blonde ale, so I think oh, yes. you should enjoy that. It's not it's right uh, my alley. not going to be too hoppy. Probably yeah. uh, like a tasty balance of like malt and weedy flavors. An American blonde ale for a movie starring an American blonde. <laughs> well, I'm hoping this uh, is easy to. Uh, Get into? <laughs> yeah. inappropriate. Stone. Oh, sorry. That's fine. Let's do it. We open with a strange pulsing sound and what looks like the center lines of a road whizzing by. Sure enough, we focus on a sports car driving very quickly through a tunnel and all over the road, in and out of both lanes. There's an extremely groggy man in the passenger seat, and the driver is Sharon Stone reprising her role of thriller novelist Catherine Trammell, and it does not take long for us to get right into the eroticism. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm a little curious on what's going down here. Um, he seems very messed up. He's sort of like hanging on. He, he asks where they are. She says he's in the car. He says uh, that, like, am I driving? And she's like, yes, you're driving beautifully, baby. And then all of a sudden, she picks up his very large hand. I noticed this. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> he's not focused on his hand. He's a big Huge hand. hand size. Huge hand size. And she licks his finger and then places it in between her legs. Yeah, they burst out of the tunnel right at the time his fingers burst into her tunnel. And right as she reaches climax, the car slides off the road, smashes through a barrier, and lands in the river, creating a big, wet sploosh. So it appears that what we have here is death by metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as she uh, they splash down, uh, both in and out of the car, into that river. She appears or attempts to unbuckle him, or it looks like she's helping him for a second, and then very quickly she gets herself unbuckled, rolls down the window, and sort of escapes. Now, we get very quickly some artsy shots from sort of below of her floating up slowly, kind of watching him sink to the bottom. It seems like he starts to come to as he's under the water, right? He starts to get some more sort of consciousness. Yeah, his eyes are open. For sure. I'm sure the water kind of freshens him up a little. He seems a little confused of what's going on. But again, like he's clearly out of it, so he does not get himself out of there. This is kind of a big deal, as we find out in her interrogation the next day. He's a famous soccer player, and they immediately assume that she caused his death, which is a pretty safe assumption for us as well. And she even admits that she probably could have tried harder to free him, which is a bold choice in an interrogation. Yeah, she is not at all intimidated in this interrogation, and... 
Uh, as someone who hasn't seen the first one, but can assume that when she was going through all the things that she was maybe in trouble for or on trial for in the first one, that she became comfortable talking to police. Oh, very much so, yeah. And again, the cops have a lot of stuff right here, but what they get wrong is their assumption, based on some drug paraphernalia they found in her car, that this soccer player had stopped breathing before they went in the water. She assures him that isn't the case, though, in the most Sharon Stoney way possible. Kevin was definitely breathing when we went off the road. How do you know? He was making me c- <laughs> Yeah, she tells them that uh, he was making her c- as yeah. they entered yeah. the water. So uh, there was no doubt that he was alive, or at least his fingers were still moving effectively. Oh. <laughs> yeah, man. Now, the main detective, uh, his name's Roy Washburn, played by that guy from the Harry Potter movies. I don't know what else yeah, he's in. Professor I Lupin. I don't yeah. know. Uh, he reminds me of Pete Postlethwaite. He is the new Pete Postlethwaite, in my opinion. Like a younger... Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, I can kind of see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, he wants her in jail like yesterday, but they might not have a case. In the meantime, they're sending her to a psychiatrist to try to gain more information about her personality and possible motivations. And what becomes very clear in the course of their conversation is that this movie is not going to be dealing in subtlety. (laughs) Oh, goodness, no. They are laying everything right out here in terms of the sexuality and the murder, right? And if we're thinking about those topics, they're they're all on the table. Um, The therapist who's talking to her and... We get, a, we get an early sense that he's going to become more wrapped up in this than uh, he anticipated when he agreed to do this interview. Oh, God, of course. I'm getting a huge body of evidence vibes from this, and that is not a good thing if you are a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about this a little more, right? Body of Evidence was the Madonna thriller that we watched together in our first season. I don't want to talk about our feelings on this movie yet overall, but I want to I want to do a little comparison at the end. Yeah, we can come back to it for sure. Now, this therapist concludes and testifies to the court that she's basically a risk junkie trying to see how much dangerous and or illegal stuff she can get away with. And how does Sharon Stone respond to his testimony? By I f***ing the shit out of him right there in that courtroom. Oh, my God. There are so many close-ups on Sharon Stone staring people down in this movie. Just like, these smoldering looks, yeah. It must have been 20 minutes of film time. Like, it was excessive for sure. If I had a dime for every, like, sexual look she gives the camera, I'd have enough money to make Basic Instinct 3. <laughs> like, literally. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you think she'd agree? Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. How old is she now? I don't know. She's got to be in her 50s, 60s. There you go. She can show the world that really old women are. No, I'm just kidding. She can pull it off. Uh, oh, okay. So she seems impressed with him and his analysis, but a reporter who confronts him outside the courthouse definitely isn't. We learn from this exchange that they know each other, and that this psychiatrist is a bit of a past himself. He might have fucked up diagnosing a patient who ended up murdering his pregnant girlfriend, and the strain of this might have led to him getting divorced. All of which is 100% going to lead to Sharon Stone destroying him, sexually at first, and then almost certainly psychologically. (laughs) So, in the first one, is this attack that she uses on the sort of police officers or detectives who are investigating her? It's very similar. Like, her moves are kind of the same. Uh, She kind of just, you know... She's got this aura of mystery about her and, I mean, also, like, heavy sexuality. And whether it's a coincidence that the detective and the psychiatrist are both kind of, like, going through some shit when she gets her hooks in them, I don't know. But, like, it, it plays out in a very similar way. It's it's really just her sort of showing power through, like, controlling people and breaking them down. Even people who are supposed to, in their roles, sort of have a bunch of control. But she knows that behind the scenes, things aren't as solid as they should be. No, and again, he's trying to present that um, kind of confident, controlled narrative to the uh, to the world. But we get a few more scenes of him now 
one where he meets Jacob Gerst, a famous author in the field of psychiatry who invites him to discuss his work. Another where he's hounded by the reporter's assistant. And like these scenes, pretty slow, I feel. But things pick up as soon as he gets back to his office where he finds Sharon Stone waiting for him. So we're into it. Yeah, so I guess she gets off. And I don't mean she but she doesn't get charged for that uh, <laughs> crime. On, <man. laughs> um, there's more of that to come later. But um, <laughs> too many double entendres. Yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're spinning our wheels here. Yeah. She is in his office under the flimsiest of pretenses that his assessment of her being risk addicted has rattled her and she thinks she needs treatment. But this gets shattered quickly when he tells her that he personally can't treat her and she drops the facade to tell him that basically she's never met anyone like him. So just playing to the ego and also his <laughs> why is because she doesn't look the sexiest way possible yeah. she's just like you know oh you're so unique and whatever she removes her jacket to reveal a very sort of sexy dress and yeah. uh i don't think she ever wears a bra in this movie um it's rare if ever yeah, yeah not once that's sort of a theme that came up a lot in our first seasons appearing again here the absence of bras yeah, oh, yeah that's right yeah, yeah, I remember that. yeah. we kind of missed that in the second season most of the women in the movies we watched in the second season wore brassiers but i don't know we're starting <laughs> off hot here with it's our always- 69th episode i guess you got to expect that for the record, I believe you were the one leading the uh, bra count in the first uh, couple seasons, not me. Either way, he inexplicably starts treating her, even though I'm pretty sure this would get him like legitimately disbarred or whatever. And of course, the first thing he does is ask her about her fantasies. But instead of delivering eroticism here, she pivots to her novels and then flips things around to ask him about that patient mishap from his past. She is like toying with him here and he is clearly going to take the bait. We even see him buying and reading literally all of her books in the next scene. Yeah, this is interesting, right? You know that as an author, right? That's her profession. She's good at researching and she does her sort of digging on him right away. She wants to be able to make him uncomfortable and she does that on their first meeting there or their first therapy session. There's a lot of close-ups on her legs, and she even starts doing some reminiscing about the first movie, sort of playing off that to make you like this one a little bit more. There are some hints for sure. Uh, You mentioned with the leg thing. That's a point of view shot we get during some deep analysis, which, yeah, is basically her just telling sex stories. And uh, she mentions hypothetically being with someone when they die. And when he asks if she's ever done that, she seemingly gets offended and walks out before the end of their session. This is a common theme, too. She'll kind of, like, retreat as a way to like exert control over him. And it comes up at big time later on. Yeah. She knows that if she gets away from him, but she kind of has her hooks in him, that he's going to have that absence makes the heart grow fonder thing. Right. Oh yeah. The more she's charm. not around. Yeah. It's, it's definitely working on him. And this is her first sort of moment of doing that. First, but not last. And speaking of recurring themes, after an obligatory scene with him and his mentor, where she tells him to be careful, spoiler alert, he will not. We get a scene at a party <laughs> That Sharon Stone just happens to be at as well. She's always showing up in the exact same places as him, which, like, I don't know, man. That kind of stretched the boundaries of credibility for me a little bit. I mean, she does her research. She knows. She said, knows okay. where to be, right? She's she's smart about that. If she's been doing this for, what, we have to assume, like, 25 years now. I mean, at least 15. Yeah. yeah. So she's she's been doing this for a really long time. She's been figuring this out. She must be able to work her way into the circles that someone else is in. It, it, yeah, the high society thing is real. She is a famous novelist and also an attractive person, which opens a lot of doors. It turns out she's at this party with that Jacob Gerst guy, the writer that uh, this Dr. Glass was so thrilled to meet with earlier. And she's also there to drop the title of the movie in, kind of. She refers to the basic 
basic instincts that make up the bulk of her novels, sex, murder, etc. And now it's Dr. Glass's turn to be rattled. And he's going to leave when she confronts him in the coat room with an offer to grab a drink. Yeah. And possibly and bang. Yeah. <laughs> she wants to grab more than a drink with him. Uh, after he sort of shoves her off and says no, she says she's okay with just a drink. Um, and this really gets him rock hard. Uh, he turns right, her wait, down. Hang on, hang on a second. <laughs> we have no evidence of that. For well, the record. well, yes, we do because immediately after he walks out on her or says he won't, he goes and finds the closest woman who he thinks he can. F- yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. He's not quite ready to throw his life away on Sharon Stone yet. Give it time. But yeah, he takes a different woman home from the party, and we see in this kind of sex scene they have. That Sharon Stone has definitely worked her way into his brain. He's like staring at the back of her novel while he's sleeping with this woman. And he kind of gets rough with her like she describes in one of her writings. Yeah. They earlier in the film sh- like show him reading the book in the bookstore. And part of it is him grabbing her hair like a horse's bridle. Yeah, like a rider grabs a horse's, yeah, something, I don't know. (laughs) So he's really pulling on her hair and hitting her from behind, and then the phone rings. Yeah, this scene gets tragically interrupted. By his ex-wife. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Now, she has arrived at that reporter's house from earlier to find him dead. This seems to be a pretty cut-and-dried case of autoerotic asphyxiation. This dude is literally naked with a belt around his neck. But when Dr. Glass steps on a Big Ben-shaped cigarette lighter exactly like the one Sharon Stone was holding in an earlier scene, he starts thinking that maybe she's the Kylie Minogue to that reporter guy's Michael Hutchins. You remember that? I do. I Yeah, I didn't realize there was someone involved. I actually wrote down this is... Oh, yeah. There were rumors that Kylie Minogue killed that dude with sex. I did not yeah. know that. I, I This is immediately what I thought of, right? I thought of In Excess yeah. when I saw this scene, but I didn't realize there was that connection. I there. thought of Kylie Minogue. <laughs> uh. so, so, <laughs> and belts? Uh. So confrontation time now as Dr. Glass walks into his waiting room steely-eyed to find Sharon Stone with a big old smile on her face. But despite coming in strong, he basically falls apart when she mentions sleeping with the reporter and knowing Dr. Glass's ex-wife. And all I could think of was, this guy is either a terrible psychiatrist or just completely outclassed here. Like, she is just toying with him. She even says, When you think about f***ing me, and I know you do, how do you picture it? And then proceeds to describe in graphic detail all the ways it could have gone down. Yeah, this is after she kind of steps over a chair. I think they're trying to throw back to that first movie when she's sitting in a chair. But instead, this time, the back of the chair is blocking her groin region. Yeah, she's sitting in a big backwards. That kind of like spread eagle, like that casual style. But yeah, the chair back's in the way. Yeah, I agree completely that this guy's just outclassed. Right, like Sharon Stone has this way more organized than him. He he thinks he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't here. He's just getting handed everything. It reminded me of when we watched The Counselor last season, and like there were all those allusions to Cameron Diaz being like a predator and just everyone else like a normal human, and she like destroys all their lives. Yeah, similar character. It's weird though how all these sort of strong female characters that we're seeing here are like instinctual, right? Like mm. animals rather than. I don't know, good people who are also strong female characters. Well, you know, you kind of work with what you got here, I guess. <laughs> uh, he is all in now, and he even calls her because he's concerned about the way their session ended. And right on cue, the detective shows up to confront him with some difficult truths. They know Catherine Tremel was f***ing this reporter, and they're almost certain she killed him. In fact, the last phone call he made was to her cell phone 90 minutes before he died. 
And it turns out he was writing a book about Dr. Glass that probably would have torpedoed his career. So it looks like he might be a suspect too. There are warning signs all over the place here, and this dude is just blowing through all of them. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly getting set up for a large fall here. I thought it could have ended here where she almost just walks away with setting him up with this murder, but we know that's not far enough for, for Sharon Stone, right? She needs to go a little bit further. She wants to see him break down completely before she's willing to move on from this. Definitely, and we start to see that here in a downward spiral montage. We get short scenes of Dr. Glass neglecting his patients, Dr. Glass reading her books, Dr. Glass repeatedly calling and giving her his home number. This guy is ready to get totally abused. <laughs> He's ready for some hot wax on the chest. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah hot wax of... on the dick. Willem. Jesus. It's bad timing, though, because in our next scene, he goes to meet with Jacob Gerst, and wouldn't you know it, Sharon Stone just happens to be in Gerst's house. I'm sure he's going to take that well, though. No problem, right? Yeah, this is sort of his big opportunity to get that promotion he was hoping for, right? To become the head or chair of some kind of Yeah, they've recommended therapy. him for something called the Douglas Chair. We gather it's some kind of prestigious position or award, but uh, Gerst has some reservations due to Dr. Glass's past incident. Yeah, it's clear that Sharon Stone's character has sort of informed him of a lot of this information. And that's uh, definitely setting up our doctor for not getting that position. Well, he's still got a chance now, though. Gerst just says, in no uncertain terms, that there can be no more mistakes. And from there, we cut to Dr. Glass following Sharon Stone around town. So he's taking those words to heart, clearly. <laughs> he follows her after that meeting, and she sort of walks to a more seedy part of town. She heads to what... Seems to be like a sex den or a prostitute. It's a hump pad to call back to our (laughs) heart condition episode last season. Yeah, where he watches her get nailed by some dude. So this is going well. Like he's got everything's working out. This is a really, really creepy scene. He follows her into the hump pad because he kind of thinks she's being harmed. I think she's paid a little bit to be roughed up, up, yeah, yeah, as a part of the sex act. But he can't find her. He breaks into a couple other rooms and sees some sex acts happening. Uh, and then ends up on a roof and looks down from a like above. What is it? What would one of those call? windows that are like you know the ones? It's not flat. It's kind of like a like a like a trapezoid. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's it, it's a triangular prism. Um, yeah. But uh, the windows that are always on top of apartment buildings, the yeah. ones that like Batman would smash through or something. They had one in like Friends, I think, too, right? Something like that. Yeah. So he's staring down through this open window, uh, and Sharon Stone is just eye f-ing him as yeah, he, she's, she's looking up cloud. at him, yeah. of course, because she like he knew he was going to be there. It's ridiculous. He, uh, this has all affected him greatly, so he turns to his mentor for support now. And like a mom whose kids are being bullied, her solution is basically the next time Sharon Stone messes with him, she'll handle it. Also handling things, the detective, who is now taking a much closer look at him because of a combination of something his ex-wife said and also not being a complete moron. Yeah. The detective knows what's up. Yeah, he's, he's on to the connection. He knows that Sharon Stone has got her hooks deep inside this therapist guy and that uh, it's not going to go well for him. No. Mike's fucked. He is for sure. And the spiral continues now as he goes to confront his ex-wife for the information she gave up. And once she reveals that she's been talking to Catherine, dude starts shouting at her and even punches a guy who tries to intervene. So now it's time for him to follow her, and he does, right to the ladies' room where, after seeing her enter with someone who looks a lot like Sharon Stone, he finds her with her throat slit. And I don't know about you, but that was not what I was hoping we were going to find behind the door after hearing her gentle moaning slash whimpering sounds. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the way they set it up is... I thought they were looking out. Yeah, they set up where they wanted you to think that Sharon Stone was in there with her and that they were taking care of each other's Just needs. <laughs> uh. um, but no, unfortunately, he opens the, the stall to see his ex-wife's throat slit. And this is the second time where he's witnessed a murder. And instead of immediately, like, calling the police, he gets involved. So he, like, I guess she's still kind of dying. So he tries to intervene and help her. But, of course, this is going to look like he's responsible. Well, he does tell someone else to get help, though, in what must have been his Oscar reel when he yells at some women who enter the restroom. Call an ambulance! Do it now! <laughs> he's terrible. It was a bad scene. Oh, so you said Michael Douglas was the person in the first one? Yep. Yeah, a lot better than this guy. I had that thought as well. This is yeah. a severe downgrade in terms of acting. Now, the cops obviously think that Dr. Glass killed her, you know, because of the argument in front of multiple witnesses and him kneeling over a dead body and all, but not Detective Roy Washburn, who is firmly convinced that everything Sharon Stone says is a lie. And is it just me or is it kind of implied here that maybe he also slept with her? Yeah. vibes, yeah. They do mention earlier in the film, or Sharon Stone does say that he says he can make it go away if she f***s him, right? And so they they were planting that seed, and it does seem like he and Sharon Stone had some kind of relationship, right? And it went wrong, and that's what causes this police officer to mistrust her even more than everybody else. Either way, they turn Dr. Glass loose, and the first place he goes is Sharon Stone's palatial apartment. She's waiting for him with a see-through shirt and a knowing grin, and even though he storms in with anger and resolve, he of course ends up nailing her. She takes things up a notch here, though, as she wraps a belt around his neck after the classic basic instinct reaching under the bed, and she going to pull out nice pick shot. So, yeah, now she's choking him with a belt while he nails her. 69th episode. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot more autoerotic uh, asphyxiation yeah. than I thought uh, we were going to see you in our sex a sexy episode. movie. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, I guess it is. Um, this is the first time they f***, right? He's been obsessed with yeah. her for a while. and Also uh, the only time, no? Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is the only time they bang in this movie. They both only because really he's, he's <laughs> choking her out with the belt, or she's know if people need to know that. But yeah. yes, it appears they both reached climax. This is important information for well, everyone. It's, it's important that they both got there, but it was only I think because the belt was in use that she was able to. I don't know if that oh, helped him too. It gets yeah. her going right away. Uh, in addition to discovering a whole new world of sexuality in that apartment, Doctor Glass also finds drugs in Sharon Stone's fridge, seemingly the exact type of drugs that were found in the soccer player's body from the beginning of the movie. Evidence. He takes it to Washburn, but as we learn in the next scene, the detective's got some past secrets himself. Witness intimidation, falsifying evidence, and probably nailing Sharon Stone? Yeah, the people who wrote this movie, right? The writers at this point are really trying to put in some doubt. All the way along, you're kind of just like, well, Sharon Stone's done all of this. We know that she's the one who's actually committed these crimes. And the doctor, our therapist guy, is just kind of getting pulled into her world. But now that this cop has sort of a bit of a shady past or we're finding out about it, then maybe there's an ulterior motive. Someone else might be responsible for some of this shit. They do this in the first one, too. A lot of the doubt creation. Like, they never really confirm that she kills all these people, but we're left to assume that she does. Unfortunately for Dr. Glass, it looks like his little romantic thing with her might have been a one and done because she knows that he stole those drugs from her apartment. She says it was insulin for a diabetic friend, but Detective Washburn says no, it was actually DTC, that drug from the beginning. 
but Glass isn't sure what to believe. So to try to convince him that she's basically a murder machine, Washburn takes him back to the hump pad from earlier where the body of that guy she was nailing has been found dead with a belt around his neck. And it turns out that he's her drug dealer, or at least that's what he testified to the cops when that soccer player died. So Glass has got to know what's up now, right? Yeah, you'd think he'd figure it out, right? But uh, he is he still sure? I'm not so sure he buys it yet. He, he thinks so. I think he's going to go try to confront her about it. Well, the detective kind of has to talk him into it first. He says, So fine, don't trust me. But you know Catherine Trimmel better than me, and if you've got five seconds when you're not dizzy with the smell of her p- you ask yourself, do you trust her? That's a good line. <laughs> I like that, yeah. Yeah, that... Uh, there was a lot of one-liners or lines in here that fell really flat, but that one was uh, pretty hilarious and delivered really well. The, the accent helps, too. He's got, like, a British accent. That helps. Uh, it seems like these words of wisdom sink in because Dr. Glass goes to confront her, and after giving him a copy of her finished novel and asking if he wants to take a jacuzzi with her, she basically confesses to multiple murders while stalking back and forth in an open robe. Yeah. This is by far her strongest scene in the movie. <laughs> because the ropes no, broken or because no. of... Yeah. Not just because of the nudity. It's well acted. She basically puts all of this on him, telling him that he's a shitty psychiatrist, that he knew all along what she was. And how does he respond to this? <laughs> so her scene here where she's kind of in and out of the jacuzzi and she's sort of admitting to these things. I think it's interesting that she even admits to the murders from the first one because uh, I think they do kind of confirm that at the end, but that's still kind of hanging over. Yeah, there's the shot where it pans down and you see an ice pick under the bed. She doesn't use it on Michael Douglas, at least not then. Yeah. But so uh, yeah. I think that was sort of a, a nod of the hat to the audience there, but she confronts him all about this and she makes him feel bad, right? Because he fucked up in that other case and people got murdered. She's basically saying, you didn't do anything about these either, right? These are on you too. And he snaps and he goes to choke her. He jumps right into that hot tub fully clothed and sinks her under the water. And he holds her under there for a good, I don't know, 10 seconds or something. But does she look distressed? No, she got a big smile on her face. It's actually a pretty decent shot, the smile of her under the water. Yeah, I actually really like that shot a lot. She's got this big grin that appears on her face after she's been down there for a little bit. And after he sees that, he can't finish the job. He sort of pulls away and she appears from outside the jacuzzi with that big grin on her face. Kind of laugh at him like, I knew you wouldn't do it. But she also seems a little bit enthused. Well, I mean, it's established at this point that she's into some... Atypical stuff. Yeah, exactly. He cannot pull the trigger on killing her, like you said, even though I had this thought. Detective Washburn probably helped him cover it up, right? Like, he seems pretty adamant on putting her down as this murder suspect. I think he would have helped, you know. Oh, yeah. I think he could have got away with it. I don't think he didn't do it because he was worried about the consequences. I think he still was in love with her. Like, I think she still had that power over him. But he gets out of the jacuzzi. Oh, you think after he does that to her, he should have banged the shit out of her? (laughs) did not say that don't put words in my mouth (laughs) well regardless of what i think he should have done he does what any emotionally grounded psychiatrist would do trashes his own apartment but after but after destroying a particularly meaningful painting he realizes that if he reads her novel it might reveal who her next target is and it turns out it's his mentor so we've got ourselves an old-fashioned race against time 
I can only assume that this is kind of what happened in the first one, right? That uh, the book being written was kind of related to the killings. Oh, that it were mirrored it. That's why they thought yeah. she was a suspect because it was like so similar to what was happening. They were convinced it was her. And she writes so many of those kind of books. People kind of assume that she's involved in that. Oh, um, she's left to just a path of destroyed lives in her wake for sure. Yeah. Now, the question is, is she following that formula or does she know he's going to read it and she's going to use this to take advantage of him here? Well, we find out when he gets to his mentor's house. And of course, Sharon Stone is there also because she just pops up everywhere. It's such bullshit. She's always there. She's worked her way in. In fact, she is now being treated by his mentor. Oh, yeah. She's convinced his mentor that Dr. Glass has totally lost it, revealed that he slept with her, which will absolutely get his license revoked and likely cause him to face criminal charges. And it goes without saying, but the Douglas chair is at the window. How could things get any worse? Yeah, I don't know. Things have completely crumbled, right? His dream of becoming that chair is gone. His mentor seems to have sided with uh, the person who is sort of destroying his life, and he doesn't have a whole lot left. He goes to kind of confront Sharon Stone physically, and what does she do? She pulls a gun on him that she has, like, for protection, and he has to back off a little bit, but he ends up getting a scuffle with his mentor and kind of pushing her, and she hits her head off a desk, and now maybe she's dead. Yeah, this is not looking good for him. He drags her up onto a therapy chair. She seems to be breathing, so I don't think she's died, but she's definitely not going to be more on his side now. No, and he is fully caught in the spider's web here. He falls right back under Sharon Stone's control when she lays out the scenario that Detective Washburn was behind all these killings. And not only that, that he fucked over Glass with his patient incident all those years ago in order to catch a drug dealer. This riles Dr. Glass up so much that he shoots Washburn the second he bursts through the door, and the scene ends with him yelling as the cops handcuff him and drag him away. And this scream he fires off is not great. It is an attempt at a primal screen. We are trying to get back to those basic instincts, right? That's oh, what they're looking yeah. for. And uh, it it falls pretty flat. We, we have him screaming as he's getting taken away by the police. The interesting shot is the mentor kind of waking up and Sharon Stone like over her shoulder. Comforting her, yeah. yeah but also looking very, very evil. In those moments, I, I really disliked how many evil stares we had uh, in yeah, the movie another in general. Yeah, deep stare into the camera. There yeah. were just too many of them, but there were a few moments where they really worked, and I thought this was one sort of good one. Well, the message is clear here, and I also, I, you haven't seen the first movie, I've seen the first movie. You just don't fuck with Sharon Stone. Like, this is a trained psychiatrist who basically, she's destroyed his life in what, like two weeks? Like, it's not like a lot of time, which actually was an issue I had with this that we'll discuss later when we do our ratings, but... From there, we dissolve to what is clearly a psychiatric hospital, complete with larger-than-life stereotypes of people with mental health issues, and we see Dr. Glass sitting in a wheelchair, almost comatose. You must have loved this scene, huh? <laughs> it was a weird, problematic kind of depiction of what a sort of mental health facility would look like, I think. It, very... It's one flew over the cuckoo's nest, basically. Yeah, and in a movie from, what, the 2000s? Like 40 years later, almost? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so that was kind of weird. I, I know they wanted to communicate to you where they were, but I thought just the big building and the people in, like, outfits was enough. And just him sitting in a wheelchair and like, yeah. that kind of, like, You patient. knew it wasn't yeah. prison. You knew he was in a hospital and not a prison. They didn't need to have like orderlies chasing people around and tackling them and people waving their arms in the air and like <laughs> all kinds of other bullshit. Yeah, right? I knew like, you wouldn't like that. Yeah. No, I didn't like that part of it. But <laughs> this conversation that comes after is is a bit too much on the nose, but it is kind of good too. Well, I mean, that's, that's your opinion, I guess. 
Uh, as we suspected all along, Sharon Stone has been behind all of these murders, but not in the way we thought. As she reveals in her final monologue, it turns out that she manipulated Dr. Glass into committing all these murders we saw in the film, which, wait, what? That makes no sense. There's no way that makes sense, right? Uh, Yeah, I didn't like this. So they kind of go back and show you scenes of all those murders, but they show Glass committing them. Now, I'm still not positive that... This is just not another narrative that she's spinning. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll never really know because even she says, or maybe it's just like fiction or something. I don't know. But that's how we leave it as Sharon Stone gives him one more kiss before walking away. And the last thing we see him do is pick up the novel and open it up, revealing the inscription to Michael, I couldn't have done it without you. Love, Catherine. Followed by a close-up of him, like, trying to smile. What a weird end shot this was. Yeah, I... This part is is a difficult ending for me, right? I would have enjoyed it more if she had have just confirmed that she was responsible. And I don't know if that's maybe what that... But she did maybe. That passage, yeah, that might yeah. be what she's saying, right? I, I didn't like that part where they like tried to convince us it was him making all of those kills. Well, but at her behest, like clearly, yeah. if nothing else, she has contributed to multiple murders. She's definitely the puppet master here, right? He wouldn't have yes. done any of that without her influence if, if in fact, he did commit those murders. But we'll never know. No, I know. And, and we're I, in the credits. That's just how like they that. want it, yeah. That's and how there they will want not it. be a basic instinct three because this movie fucking bombed. Oh, did it? Oh, my God, yes. Are you kidding me? Yeah, big time bomb. Yeah, it's a legendary failure. Apparently, like even trying to get it made, like this studios wouldn't make it. They kept switching directors and stuff. At one point, they offered the the Doctor Glass role to Robert Downey Jr. Whoa! As if there was any fucking chance that he would take. I that. mean, that would have been interesting, though. It would have been better. It would have been a lot better, but no, no dice. Uh, and like this ending, what she's saying can't possibly be true, right? She's got to be the killer. Yeah. How would he have fucking melted down that badly in a period of, again, like two weeks? And his breakdown would have been so bad that he wouldn't realize he had committed those crimes? Like, Yeah, that's that's a bridge too far for me. But to be fair, most of this movie's bridge too far for me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think we should probably just get to our ratings right now. The way we always do this, rate on a scale of 1 to 10 twice, 1 to 10 for how bad it is, 1 to 10 for how enjoyable, and the idea is to find movies that are a 10 out of 10 on both scales, or as we call it, the Crit 20. And for me, I feel weird about saying this, but I don't have this as a 10 bad. Although it is an extremely awful movie, I did feel like the nods to kind of the first one and the fact that they did on some level keep us guessing means that they kind of sort of accomplished what maybe the sequel was looking out for. I this is a nine bad because it's still really bad. Like the acting is not great. Um, huge downgrade from Michael Douglas to whoever the fuck this guy is. Sharon Stone, like I want to be very clear about this. She's still sexy here, but she has clearly lost a lot of speed off her fastball, which happens, right? Like it's time but I almost feel like she worked so hard at getting skinny for this movie that it ended up making her less attractive. She's super thin. Yeah, she's very thin in this movie. Yeah, and I think that affected some other parts that might have maybe, you know, made been more appealing more to you. The, yeah, yeah. yeah, you never know. Also, maybe it's the British setting and the reserved button-down nature of the academic types that make up a large portion of this movie. But to me, the non-sexual parts of this were boring as shit. Just milk toast performance <laughs> after milk toast performance. <laughs> I dragged for me, dude. It dragged. So I have this as a nine bad. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's interesting for me compared to you because I haven't seen the original. Was the first one a good movie? It was a massive hit. We wouldn't be able to talk about it on the podcast. Like it I don't w- think so. Yeah. I think I think it's well made. It's a well made erotic thriller. 
Okay. And so that's interesting, right? Because Different you, director. You go, go from to, that yeah. to here. Um, I did struggle with the writing. I thought, especially early, a lot of the lines were not hitting. Like, I, they almost didn't build enough time for how aggressively it came out with the sex and the murder, mm. right? Like, I and and maybe that is because it's a sequel, and you're supposed to know that and expect that from the character from the first one. But I just it, it sort of jumped out and surprised me. Um, the stairs, like so many glares, <laughs> uh, I had trouble with. Like I said, man, I'd be a millionaire if I had to die yeah, every stairs. time she looks. At the, yeah, yeah. The acting was a struggle at times for me, particularly the therapist. Um, I thought he was a struggle. I did think that. Sharon Stone was okay. There were moments that hit and moments that did not hit. Um, and I do like the the police officer guy. I thought he did what he was supposed to in that role for sure. Yeah, that's fair. I think right. he, he probably, he's probably the best performance of the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. I thought he you did a good job. Um, it was long. It, it was longer than it needed to be. Almost uh, two hours. I already complained that there wasn't enough uh, like sex and nudity <laughs> in this, right? Uh, for it's our 69th episode, yeah, yeah, this we needed to have. I like, think we did okay for a 69th <laughs> episode. Like, come on now, it's definitely a sexy movie. Uh, but all that being said, I had it at an eight bad. Oh, then I'm not that. Yeah, much we're not. We're not in that big. Okay. Uh, we're not big in that difference there. But how enjoyable on a scale of one to ten did you have this movie? How much did you like watching? 40-plus-year-old Sharon Stone getting nailed by a bunch of dudes. <laughs> I think she only gets nailed twice. Uh, she gets f***ed in a car once. That's true. That was one yeah, of the she sexiest. Gets, she gets f***ing for sure. Yeah. So I, I thought that the movie did keep me guessing, and that's something that I enjoy. It wasn't completely clear whether Sharon Stone had done it all or whether the cop was involved or whether it was the therapist. I thought that that was good. I thought the editing um, and sound and tone fit well, right? Like you could tell it was professionally produced. Like there was no no problems with the craft in that way. Sharon Stone, I thought, was still like a good fit for that role. I thought she could still pull that off and was attractive. But overall, it just didn't have enough of the sexuality for me. <laughs> it hit a little bit too... I love it. That's she hit a little like, bit too hard uh, out of the gate, right? And that, maybe that's because of the sequel. The fact that it's a sequel just to make money bothered me. I mean, if it is to empower Sharon Stone, then I guess that that's sort of a positive thing. Okay, but. so about that, I, I just looked this up. She was 48 when the movie came out. Oh, it's pretty, it's pretty good 48, right? Really good. Yeah. 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 So good for her. Yeah. I had this as a six enjoyable. Okay. So not not brutally low, but no. also not in That's the... That's not high. That's not, not a good... In the There's zero movie. chance you'd watch this again. No, no. Yeah, I don't want to watch enough. it again. Okay. I might watch the first one. I would like to watch the first <laughs> one now. Um, Not for the leg scene, but uh -huh. <laughs> just so I know what it's about. Okay. Whatever yeah. you say. Uh, uh, I'm in a very similar range to you. In fact, I was going to give this a five for enjoyable, but I'll give it a six for symmetry. I like the nine bad, six uh, six enjoyable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just got to throw 69. There I like go. that. Good for you. Uh, no, man. Like it, it, really, it really is just, in many ways, a retread of the first one. Same stuff, same stuff's happening. I'm like, come on, dude. Like, you know that she's obviously behind this, but he gets sucked into it because they all get sucked into it. Again, the speed at which this dude's life falls apart, it seems unreasonable. It's so over the top with so many things. Now, the, the looks to the camera, <laughs> some of the lines, like, Jesus, they're just hitting you over the head, which is a common complaint we've had over many episodes of this podcast. She's good in it. Like, I have no complaints about her in it. And again, 48, like... Not a lot of 48-year-old women in real life could pull this off, so kudos to her, but this is not a good movie. I'll give it the six, again, just for symmetry. I don't want to give it a five, but we'll call it that. This or Body of Evidence? 
So that's the question, right? And like, I will say that based just on these numbers, we both rated body of evidence lower. Like I think we both had a 10 bad and like a two or three enjoyable. It wasn't a very enjoyable movie. This was better than body of evidence, but that's not saying much. No, I think that's interesting though. I think, I think the part that makes this better is they do a kind of a good job of making you guess where things are going. We never really find out who we killed don't those know people. Where no. where that's very clear in, it was her. It was her. Bobby De- yeah, oh, well, we we know it is. But but that's very clear in body of evidence. I was complaining about less sexuality in this one. There is definitely more in body of evidence. Yes. But that did not make it better. You know what's funny though? As we sit here talking about this, like I will not watch this again either. There's a greater chance of me watching Body of Evidence again. For the sexiness. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> well, this is the 69th episode, so I don't blame you. Body of Evidence is a more ridiculous movie, I feel. Yeah, like, it definitely Willem is Willem Dafoe's yeah. involvement in it, in, like the whole thing, some of the sex scenes in that are just, they, they are, they're gratuitous and ridiculous. I think if it was like gun to my head, you must watch one of these movies again, I would watch Body of Evidence again, but here I have rated this higher. It makes no sense. I don't understand why. So did we fuck up on our body of evidence rating? Is that the question? Oh, you're saying we should revisit it? Watch it again? And, try- <laughs> and just try to see if maybe we were too harsh on it at the time. Was it just weird watching it together? And now we're much more comfortable watching erotic thrillers together. That could be it. You never know. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. We're more comfortable with ourselves. Sharon Stone has opened us both up to, in our older age, of being uh, more sexual. <laughs> so, so there's that. Oh, my gosh. What do you think of this beer? Yeah. It's not um, your style of beer. No, no, no. Um, well, I, I mean, you hype me up as the IPA man. I am a beer man. I enjoy beers. Um, this blonde is easy to take in, just like Sharon Stone in this movie, I think. is the. <laughs> um, when they describe themselves as sort of simple, not doing too much to the beer, you can kind of taste that. It feels very farm-like in its flavors. You can taste the grains. It tastes like they could have brewed this up like last week, and we're just drinking it. You know what I mean? Like, Super that's fresh. A, yeah. Yeah, the malt takes obviously prominence in this which i love it's not it's not hot but it's very clear um just a sort of like a golden delicious color and you can definitely feel the farm in it it's sort of like putting some wheat right inside your mouth right just getting in i'm happy to i'm happy to happy to taste this cougar bait (laughs) (laughs) yeah happy to be (laughs) cougar bait (laughs) well as the country boy you are it makes sense that you'd be down for the cougar bait beer i'm a city boy but i'm more country than you are that's for damn sure i grew up in the country and yet (laughs) and yet (laughs) no i mean this was very tasty i I, again like i've never been to kentucky there's one like one of the few states i haven't been to uh if i ever go to kentucky and i hope that i do i would check out country boy brewing Got to so. go to Lexington, I think. Uh, if if this is available to you where you live, definitely check out their beers. The uh, that brown sounds really tasty too. The mm, yeah. uh, the shotgun wedding. Yep, we both enjoy. A, is it a honey brown or just a brown ale? Just a brown ale, but I okay. think it's got some vanilla notes to it, which uh, I love in my beers. Well, that was tasty. And uh, speaking of things that are tasty, next week. We are going to be watching a movie that I guarantee many people have not seen or probably even heard of. But if you are a fan of the 80s. Who isn't? Or if you are a fan of musicals. Oh my God, who isn't? Then I strongly, strongly recommend you find this movie, check it out, and listen to next week's episode where we discuss Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Oh God, yes. Yeah, it's basically about a group of aliens who are searching the galaxy for like the pinnacle of rock and roll slash popular music and they land on earth in the 80s 
and uh, various shenanigans ensue. Is this like Phantom of the uh, Rock Opera-esque? Are we getting Phantom of the Paradise you know vibes is? here? It's, it's almost like, I forget when Grease came out. Grease might have come out in like 1980, but Grease is kind of that 1950s kind of, it's like, it's like the most 80s version of Grease possible. Oh my God. So uh, again, if you love the 80s or if you love musicals or if you love Grease, then you got to listen. You should join us next week for Voyage of the Rocky Islands. It's a Vinegar Syndrome release. Oh, thank our, you, our, Vinegar Syndrome. Oh, we're fucking, we love those guys. Yeah. I love Vinegar Syndrome. They're so good. So yeah, that'll be next week. Should be very exciting. If you have not already, please follow us on social media at the BMB podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, feel free to send suggestions for beers and or movies. We're sort of just getting into our third season here and looking for some more fan requests. We're always happy to do those. Feel free to also send us messages to the BMB podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we've actually got an audience request coming up. That'll be a good one. A little Jean-Claude Van Damme. There's a little preview for Oh, JCVD's coming back. He sure is. Fuck yes. But until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it sexy. Sometimes obsession can be murder. <laughs>